0: This is Shonda Smith-Baker, the host of Conversations with Shonda. The conversation we are getting ready to have is with Dr. Sylvia Bartley. She is an executive, a leader, an author, and recognized advocate and champion for social change. She has dedicated her career to the elimination of health, education, and economic disparities. She wrote a book called Turning the Tide, a book around her journey to emotional health. She is a dear friend of mine, and I believe you will enjoy this conversation. And it is a conversation that builds from the conversation we had last week with Sue Abderholden on mental health, how we can better care for each other and those in our community. So thank you for listening, and I will catch you on the other side.
1: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda. A Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith Baker.
0: We are having this conversation from San Diego, where we are both here for a conference. And so thank you for taking time on this break in this place to be with me.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And we're looking at a bay with palm trees, the sun is shining surrounded by beautiful black women. What can I say?
0: I mean, there's nothing like it. And so let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about you, though, as a black woman coming from the UK <laughs> by way of lots of places, you made it to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And so we met when you had just arrived, perhaps, to the Twin mm-hmm. Cities. That's and, correct. And you came as part of your role at Medtronic. And so how did this uh, woman
1: from... London, (laughs) land in Minnesota. Yeah, well, the only way I landed in Minnesota was through my my job at this medical device company called Medtronic, one of the best companies in the world, I must add. And uh, it's a global company, so I had a role in the UK and then in Europe. And part of my career development growth and also to replicate and scale some programs and, and structures that I created in Europe, uh, I relocated to United States, and um, knowing that I was relocating, one of the things that I was very mindful of is getting involved in my community. And by my community, I mean the black community, because I believe the Malawit Shores we were dropped off at, black people living in a diaspora, we share some common experiences, and one of those, unfortunately, is there are a lot of disparities. So I learned about the African-American Leadership Forum through some of the leaders in Medtronic, And uh, after I came to United States in uh, 2010, we arrived, my daughter and I arrived in August. And I think it was by November, I said to my friend, I'm ready to go to an ALF meeting. And that was a Saturday morning when I showed up at UROC. And uh, Kim Nelson and Jeff Hassan was at the head of this table full of African-American brilliance. That's all I can say. It was intimidating because I'm British I didn't know the culture, but this group, they were focused purely on the academic achievement gaps between white and black students. So you had educators and elective officials and community folks and and leaders like yourself who, at the time, you were heading up Pillsbury, and it was just a room full of this knowledge and brilliance, and I was just in awe. And I remember walking away from there thinking, my God, I want to get involved, but how can I help this brilliant group of people? Because they got it all. And uh, so I just committed to attending the meetings and really trying to sit back and watch and listen. Because I wasn't an expert in the US education system and I didn't know the culture and I didn't know the the community. So I was just consistently listening and learning and being a quiet person in the room. And then one day I saw where I could add value and I thought, okay, I can add structure and uh, strategy and a framework because there was all these ideas and Lots of things to do. And so I thought, I thought to myself, I can help do that framework. So I said to Kim Nelson, here's a framework I developed. Do you think this will be useful for the group? And that's how I became from a passive listener and learner to an active engager. And that's where I met you, because I remember you clearly sitting across the table with your baseball cap. You were really quiet, but then when you opened your mouth, it was full of knowledge and intelligence and observations. And I was like, who is this woman and you were on my radar for i have got to get to know her and here we are my dear friend 12 years later
0: 12 years later i was sitting there on a saturday with my baseball cap trying mm-hmm. to trying to blend in with the wall <laughs> <laughs> and just listen and observe and i think you know what's really special about what you just shared about the journey because there's so many people especially in a time that we're living in now where many of the disparities, right? We've talked about disparities, but but it can be very distant for people, right? It's these folks over there that are experiencing it. And, and then 2020 and the pandemic, it became way more immediate in terms of people's understanding of what it means. Like it was right in front of our face in ways that we had not seen before. And I get the question a lot. And many people that are working in the social sector get the question of, I want to help, I just don't know what to do. And so here you are, you're coming into a new country, you knew you wanted to do something. And so what I heard you say is that you found a place to go, you were a quiet listener, you didn't know the culture, you didn't know the people, you didn't know the issues, you didn't know the sector, but yet you, you stayed at the table until you found the way for you to contribute in your way. And then you offered an added value. That's a lesson right there.
1: Let's talk about the African-American Leadership Forum. So you're still involved. I am. Twelve years later, I'm still on the board. I went from being the co-chair of the education work group. And when I think it was like probably six months in, because one of the things I can do is just being consistent. So again, being new to Minnesota, consistently showing up, being reliable, showing up on time. You know, even if I don't say anything, just being there to help clear the tables, take the trash out, getting my hands dirty, doing all of those things on a really frigid cold Saturday morning at eight o'clock. And I lived in Eden Prairie, so I had to leave my house at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning to get there on time to do all of this. But for me, one, it filled my heart and, and gave me joy. Two, it connected me with the community. And three, and more importantly, it's helping our community. And so I think... um I, I went from just being consistent and then Kim Nelson asked me to be the co-chair of the education work group, this phenomenal group of people. And I literally said to her, I said, like, who, me? Because first of all, she called me and I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Kim's calling. <laughs> Kim's calling. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, then, of course, you have to, all you can say to Kim is yes. But then I said to her, look, please go back to the group and ask them first. Don't just appoint me because that's never going to work for anybody. Just get the consensus of the group. It was myself and and Chris Stewart. They went ahead and did that. Then I was a co-chair for, I think, five years, Shonda. Mm -hmm. Different co-chairs really loved doing that work and getting involved more deeply, working with elective officials and Harvest Network of schools. And I got very involved. Eric asked me to be on the chair to um, help start, be the founding chair for Mastery School and China Management Organization. So this went on for at least five years, and then we helped ALF move, and you know, because you were the co-chair, the tri-chair, yeah. and we helped ALF move from, you you guys led that, uh, a group or a collective of people to a 501c3. Yeah. And then helped to build the organization, so very instrumental in hiring our first executive director. And as a full-time employee, Marcus Owen did a phenomenal job of building the organization. I'm very proud to say, just recently, hot off the press, we uh, we hired our second full-time executive director, Adair Mosley, so excited about him and how he's going to take Alf to the next level. So I'm really glad that I can be there along the journey. I think it's I will hang up my hat soon and let other leaders take over so you get fresh perspectives and new ideas, but just really glad to see it in a solid place. And we all played a role in that journey we all played a role in that journey. It wasn't just, you know, individuals. And that's what I love about ALF, it's the true collective.
0: Yeah, I remember when I met you, your photo on your phone was a brain. You have a PhD in what, neuro, whatever? Oh, you still have it on there? I still have my brain. Okay, I see.
1: Neurophysiology, and I'm fascinated by the brain and its workings.
0: Why? (laughs) (laughs) Say more about that.
1: You know. I think uh, my mother would say, God works in mysterious ways. People say to me, were you a STEM person when you were a kid? No, but I did well in science. But my I, a job that I had, my first job straight out of school, was working as a research technician in a medical school in London. And uh, this is where I found my love for neurophysiology. And I worked in a physiology department, but I worked in a sub kind of department working in neurophysiology because physiology is everything. But I worked with the professors on the brain, and they taught me so much about the brain. And it's just, for me, the most fascinating organ in the body. Because if you think about when we get up, when you pick up your cup, when you raise your eyebrow, when you look at people, these are all commands that are being done in our brain. And they're sending these signals along axons and pathways to our fingertips and to our hands so we can do the motor movement, we can do all of these things, we can sit up straight. And I think that's not to be taken for granted because in Medtronic, I worked with a therapy called deep brain uh, stimulation. And that is a therapy that you apply electrodes into deep structures of the brain and you apply chronic stimulation to alleviate symptoms of Parkinson's, dystonia, central tremor. These are movement disorders, neurodegenerative. And so I saw firsthand what happens when the brain doesn't work well in the motor part. They can't sit still, their hands are tremoring, the soles of their feet is touching the back of their head. And that is their normal body posture, which means all sorts of things like muscle contractions, bone distortions, people literally being in constant pain 24 hours a day because their body is just so contorted because a part of their brain He's not firing right or functioning right. And that's maybe an extreme example, but that's what happens when it doesn't work. And so working in therapies that can help alleviate those symptoms so people can live good qualities of life is something that I am 100% committed to. And did that work in Medtronic for at least, um, I know, 10, 12 of my 20 years at Medtronic, working around the world literally with neurosurgeons, disseminating the procedural practices, so they put the lead in the right spot, they apply the right stimulation, so you get the best optimal outcome for the patients. And that was just a soul fulfilling role that I could never have imagined when I was a kid. So that's why I love the brain. So you were a kid that wasn't a
0: STEM kid. Were you at least a good student? (laughs) i was a
1: hard-working student <laughs> let me, let me put it that way yeah <laughs>
0: i always said that because you know we have this very consistent narrative right like if you're not good in school then you won't be successful later and yeah, you know crap. we all have what did you just say i said that's that's
1: not right i think you said that's crap
0: but anyway anyway
1: why isn't it right about it, it's crap but let me just share my experience everyone's experience is different so uh, born and bred in the UK, Caribbean parents. Uh, there was a migration of Caribbean people to the UK, ex-colonies, bringing them in to do all the domestic work. And I went to uh, a predominantly white school, living in a predominantly white neighbourhood. That was fine. That was my experience. Uh, we were talking the other night and I said, I really didn't experience racism when I was growing up. And uh, But I knew I was different and I always felt disconnected. And I had to try hard to be um, in my stream. So they streamed us. A stream being a high, they streamed you based on your level of academic ability, A, B, and C. I was in the A stream. I don't know why they put me in the A stream. I think it was because of my sister's academic abilities <laughs> and not mine. And I struggled to, I struggled in the A stream. So I was always on the bottom of the A stream. We would have a test. There were, my results would be at the bottom. And it wasn't for the one to try in. I got A plus effort for trying. I tried so hard. And I would go home and cry and I'd be up at two in the morning And it was disheartening, it was demotivating, that I was trying really hard and yet again, I'm at the bottom. And so I remember saying to a white female teacher, Mrs. Bannerman, I said, you know, I'm really struggling in maths in particular. And uh, I said, please, can you just move me down to the B-stream? And she said, nope, (laughs) Um, you just need to apply yourself differently and we're gonna work on this together. See, that's the difference as opposed to saying, yep, down you go. We have no expectation for you. She said, no, you have ability. You're just applying it wrong. And so we worked together and yeah, I did well. I mean, I ended up passing all my exams and, and from then on, I literally flourished. You know, I got my first degree and I was on the, and and here's the, and it's funny talking about this. I remember being in my, my first degree doing applied biology in a university. Again, that was predominantly white. There was a probably three black people out of 60, and we had this big biochemistry test. And I remember doing a test, and I left probably 20 minutes early, and everyone looked at me like, oh, yeah, she can't do it, right? But I'd I done it. And uh, and then when they're reading the results, the guy, I don't know why he did this, lecture, he read the results from the bottom to the top, and it's 60 people. And he read everyone's results out loud and I was like oh and I'm like oh my god I was cringing like I'm I'm going to be at the bottom cuz that was my experience at school who was at the top I was the one at the top and there was a big gasp across the lecture theater everyone was like oh. all my friends my little, my study group they right were cheering and hugging me but there was a gasp and I don't think it's because they were racist it's because I left like half an hour before the exam finished and I think it was the way I applied how I learned. I didn't learn like tradition. most people. I just learned differently. And when I got that. You took off. Took off? You took off. One of the other things I know we have in common
0: is that we were in uh, school as parents. We didn't have sort of the nice neat package pathway.
1: Mm -mm. Can you say how that route was for you? Yeah, I, I am so a unicorn. And they're so different. So, I I did not know what I wanted to do when I left school. So I just floated for a little bit, and then I got this job. And then they said, "Well, you're smart. Uh, do a do your first degree." So I did my first degree on what we call in UK day release. So I worked four days a week, and on the fifth day, or whichever day it was, it was a Thursday. I went to a university that did a HNC, which transferred. You do it extra years. It was a degree. In applied biology and that model was great for me because i'm a didactic learner so four days a week i was doing all this uh, research stuff in my university that i worked in and then one day a week i learned the academic stuff and then when i didn't understand stuff i had the beauty of going back to my academics to explain and then we had to do a practical project and assignment and we i did that at work and i had all the equipment so that was really good and they funded that and when I finished that, and I did really well, I got a two-one um, BSc honours degree, which is, which is decent. Um, my professor said, Let, I want you to do a PhD. And I looked at him and said, no way. Because I, w- I wasn't white, I wasn't middle class, I didn't have the private back- background. And I idolised these folks that had doctorates. They were all the academics doing all the lectures. They were a cut above. And, you know, in the UK, there, there was classism too, being a technician, there was this kind of separate divide. But they wanted me to cross over the chasm. And uh, and this one guy did, everybody else didn't. But uh, that's a different story. <laughs> but again, someone believed in me. But it took me two weeks before I accepted his offer because I didn't think I was worthy of that position. And it was only until one of the students, the students loved me, I did some teaching. She came to my office. She was crying her eyes out. She could not get a grant to do her Ph.D., And this was a third time trying. And I think it was the universe way of saying, look, people are kidding themselves to get what was offered to you on a plate and you can't accept it. So just trust. So I just trusted and I went and registered and the rest is history. I got my PhD five years later. And I, I, uh, yeah, it was a a moment because that was never in my line of sight. And I did all of this while I was a parent, single, got married, got divorced, Single parent, different relationship, another child. So when I was doing my um, my oral exam for my BSc, I was like eight months pregnant. And uh, the guy said, how can we make this more comfortable for you? And I said, well, what you can do is don't ask me any questions. <laughs> he <laughs> laughed. <laughs> Just give me that PhD. Give me that thing. But we, we had a great conversation. But yeah, I was a single parent, raising two kids and studying for my PhD. Part-time. Part-time. And it took you five years. Took me five years part-time, which is a minimum time you can do it part-time. You can't do it before then. And in addition to that, Shonda, not many people know this, but I I can't say I was poor, but I was struggling. I was living hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck. I was living above my means because my salary wasn't enough to support me and my two children. So every month I had to negotiate which bill I was going to pay or... Who am I going to ask to get food from this month? Like, who is it, my mum or my sister? My sisters will pay my bills. My mum will buy me shopping and nappies. And it was like buy that. Buy you what? Diapers. Is and, that what it, di- And nappies? nappies. What's yes, that? A diaper. Oh, okay. We call it nappies. But it was like that. I, I needed the support of my family because I was financially strapped. And this went on for years. Um, But I knew, and this is why I love education, because I knew in my heart that education was my root out of that situation, and it sure was because with higher education you get a better job, and then if you perform, you know yeah, things just progress from there. So my early years was a years of struggle, depression. Um, literally, we were living in places where there was mold on the wall, and we had to put plastic over the windows. And my my son, I had to pull him in like a full coat, hat, and gloves at night time because it was freezing. In our, in our apartment, we had it rough. It wasn't easy. <laughs> Strength shows up, doesn't it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It wasn't easy. Let's talk about depression. Let's talk about depression.
0: Okay. So we all have had moments, and you had many moments, and then it led you to get formally diagnosed with depression. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote a book
1: about it. It was um, actually the other way around. Okay, well, tell us the story. The book was very cathartic in that I wanted to write about intersectionality between neuroscience, spirituality, and emotional health. And I really was getting deep into the science, and Sly Jones, you know, great playwright, he, he, he was kind of like my mentor, and he said to me, I needed a hook that would connect me with the audience, I need to be vulnerable, because why would they read all this scientific stuff? And I was like, I ain't got no hook. I don't know what you want to talk about. You know, I felt very uncomfortable with that conversation. Anyway, but during writing the book, I was living with depression. I think I was also perimenopausal, which amplifies uh, symptoms for depression. And, uh, but I didn't know it, and I just thought I had negative thoughts. So when I was writing the book, I would say, yep, I have negative thoughts. I'm a little bit pessimistic, but this depression when I was writing the book was just doubling down on me and getting really, really bad that it nearly kind of, I, I was always, I've always been highly functional and behind the scenes I would like crumble, but I nearly crumbled in public and that's when I knew I was in trouble. And I was writing a chapter on the book and the depression was just so bad. I couldn't, it disabled me almost. And um, my friend's voice was in my head You know, we experience these things for a reason and you've got to find your purpose and reason for experiencing this. And I thought at that moment, I need to be honest about it and talk about what I'm feeling. And that's where Slides Jones coaching came in and said, don't describe it. Just write what you see, what you smell, what you feel. And so during that moment, I just picked up my keyboard and I started to write that. And then when I finished writing it, I was like, wow, I'm depressed and then I went finally went to a psychiatrist 2017 and uh, she diagnosed me with and bearing in mind I know a lot about depression because I worked there with uh, in, in my, that was a speciality in my field that we were working on I, uh, she said well you got now let me get it right a severe moderate reoccurring major moderate reoccurring depression I also said no I do not and she said, Why do you say that? So I gave her all this science, right? Trying to be smart. And she just looked at me, her eyebrow was raised, her arms were crossed. And she said, This is the indicators for depression. One, it lasts more than two weeks. Two, they people have it, no, it doesn't last more than two weeks. Two, people have it once or twice in life, three. And I was like, okay. Because this was something that I've had as long as I can remember, if I'm to be honest. And as soon as I accepted that diagnosis it was like a load came off my shoulders. I wasn't, it sounds crazy, but I felt like I wasn't crazy because I always felt different. And so then I, that was my path to healing. And then I decided to look into treatments, uh, holistic treatments that I could do to address my depression. That's mindful, I, I don't take medication, that's personal to me, but I do the exercise and yoga and all that good stuff. But if I wanna fast forward to the pandemic, one of the things the pandemic allowed me to do was to be still, because I couldn't travel so much. Then I said, okay, let me double down on my health. And I went to the Amen Clinic and I actually took some functional brain scans, spec scans, so I can literally identify my brain where I had overactivity or underactivity, like the root cause of my depression. And you can visually see it. And once I saw that, then I worked with a functional psychiatrist to get a tailor-made treatment plan of supplements, exercise, hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatment and all of the different kind of treatments that are specific to me. So supplements that are 5-hydroxytryptamine because I had a overactive, if I can get technical for a little bit, overactive basal ganglia. That's your seed of emotions. Uh, that's where, you know, feelings of isolations, suicide ideation, feelings of not belonging, all of those areas my brain was on fire. It was super overactive, which meant I would feel those things. So even seeing that made me feel better because again I wasn't sometimes people say to me, "Don't be so negative, pull your socks up, get on with it. Everyone has a bad day. But this really crippled me sometimes but and I would be depressed for no reason. People say, no your triggers And I could be happy and then the next day I could be really sad. And feel like I'm not loved and I feel very isolated, like I don't belong. And it's very crippling and it's awful feeling like that. I can't explain it. And then looking around and everyone's happy and everyone's like, what are you going to be sad about? You know, and then I'm just like, well, and I can't explain it to folks. But then knowing that there's physiology and chemical imbalance behind it and overactivity and then taking supplements to calm down my anterior... um, gyrus to bring it down to a level, to build up my 5 to me my serotonin, because I have a low reserve. It's work, right? Because I'm every day I'm taking like 15, 20 supplements, I'm exercising, I'm eating the right foods, I'm doing all of this stuff. But for once in my life, I can feel, I feel at peace. I feel whole, I feel happy, I feel connected. If I was on this kind of a trip five years ago, I would be in my room I would feel like I don't belong, all these beautiful people, and I'm this awful person that's out there by myself. It would it would amplify my depression. And right now, I'm just feeling so part of this community, and I know it's because of the years of work that I've done to really understand the root cause and then be committed to the treatment pathway that is different to just taking medication because it's, it's a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. I watched you sort
0: of stumble over using the word crazy. There's so many stereotypes and negative connotations around mental health and depression. For those that might be listening that are struggling, maybe in the place that you were 5 years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if you were yourself back then, like what would you what would you
1: advise? What would you say? Well, I if I wow, well, you know, I'm I'm going to answer your question. I did a talk once in in uh, Medtronic, and I very open about talking about my depression once I was diagnosed. And people talk, like I give these leadership talks, and I talk about internal, and then I say, hey, look, you know, you see me up here, you think I'm successful, but that's not how I felt for most of my life. And then uh, and then I talk about my depression, and one lady, people are crying, people are like leaning forwards. One lady came up sobbing, saying. I lived all my life with a particular condition. I was undiagnosed. I wish I was diagnosed earlier. So to answer your question, I wish I was diagnosed when I was five years of age when I first had my feelings of depression, because then I could have lived a fuller life. But that wasn't my path and that wasn't my purpose. I had to go through this kind of convoluted purpose to get to this point for whatever reason. So I would say, if you are feeling it, it sounds so simple. But go and get help and do not take no for an answer. Do not accept, pull your socks up. Do not accept, get out of bed and get on with it. Do not accept that you don't have anything to be sad about. Do not accept, oh, you're so negative. Just really go and say to the doctor, look, these are some of the things that I'm feeling and experiencing. And there's all these um, tests that people do. And from these tests, they can diagnose you and then you can get the treatment. But then I would secondly advise everyone's experience is different. Everyone's physiology is different, everyone's makeup is different, so what works for me is not gonna work for everybody else. But make sure you get a holistic plan. Look into the root cause of what is causing your depression. Medication is great, but it's like that ocean. It's like, okay, there's an ocean out there, and in the ocean something is off, and I'm gonna throw in these drugs, a load of drugs in the ocean, I'm gonna hope that something sticks. 30% of medications work for people, Anyone listening, if you're taking medication for depression, do not stop. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is it's treating the symptom. And then after a while, that doesn't, that kind of, you reach a kind of threshold where it comes ineffective. But understand what is the root cause of why you're feeling the way you are. And then treat that is the prevention. Because once you get to the root cause, then you're going to have more success in your management. And I will say, I don't think depression is never going to go away. Right, isn't that, if I stop taking these supplements, it will probably reverse back, maybe, I don't know. It's a lifetime commitment to addressing your emotional health.
0: Yeah, what if the the person saying you have nothing to be sad about is yourself? Right, what if it's not an external messenger? What if it's an internal person?
1: <laughs> but, wait, but wait, where did that internal voice come from? That internal voice came from external messages at Fair. some point, right? Yeah. It, it's our conditioning. It's, you know, you the conditioning that we're brought up in, we just got to get on with things, particularly as black people. We were conditioned not to show emotion, not to feel, to have horrific traumatic things happen to us, in front of us, and God help us if we show an emotion. Even today, a good example is angry black woman. They're dehumanizing us by saying we're not allowed to have feelings. You know? And so... If we are saying to ourselves, I have no right to be sad, we've been conditioned.
0: Fair point, fair point. You were not just honest sort of with yourself when you took actions, but you were very vulnerable um, in a moment inside of a company, right? To talk about your personal journey regarding sort of your mental health, your depression, the actions that you were taking. And there's a lot of conversations around vulnerability and leadership. Right, and it was perhaps an act of courage for you to get in front of your peers and colleagues at Medtronic to lead in a way that obviously was transformative for that community that was there listening
1: to you. Did it feel like an act of courage? Mm Mm-mm, not at all. I think um, when you live with something for so long and it's your lens and you hide it for so long, or you try and hide it for so long, it just sucks the living daylights out of you, it sucks the energy out of you. So I reached that point spiritually too, where I had to keep asking what is my path and what is my purpose and how do I use it for the better? And it was freeing, it was very freeing to be open and say, you know, I have depression and not that I, cause when you say that I, I initially thought it made me look weak, people think I can't do my job, they will see me differently. They wouldn't respect me. And when I got over my fears, um, false expectations are real. When I got over that, people were so supportive. And it led to different avenues of support and not having to pretend anymore. Oh, my God, is the best thing. And so that word vulnerable, I, I really want us to be in a place with emotional health where somebody says I have breast, breast cancer. They don't hesitate. You know, some people are private people so they keep stuff themselves, but people are open to share that and people don't say, oh, thank you for being vulnerable. They immediately go to, I'm so sorry to hear that. How can I help you? I want that to be the place where we say I've got depression, not thank you for being vulnerable or oh, you're so brave. Oh, you're so courageous. Somebody told me. I want it to be so normalized in parentheses that people say, How can I help you? Or this is where you get help.
0: Yeah, I hear that. And and for some people, it's very normalized in their social setting, but Mm. not normalized in a professional setting. And I think where where my interest is, is in terms of not just how you felt and how freeing it was. But it didn't sound like your leadership was diminished in anyone else's eyes right? It felt like it actually probably was amplified, right? And I think that's the story is that sometimes you're hiding stuff and then you put it out there and you're like, well, wait, they actually see my leadership more now, right? Because I disclose that the very opposite often happens. And I think that's, that's part of what I want to illustrate because there's, there's so many people that have, you know, in a, Funny because we were talking about religion earlier, but in a religious context, right? Like you go through these tests that become the testimony, right? Like it becomes a thing that you share that allow other people
1: to open up and see more, right? And, And if I can jump in here, I think that extends to community leadership as well. So the emotional talking about my emotional health and then talking about the ways in which I approach it, I kid you not, I probably did 30 talks in different teams and functions at Medtronic. Purely about that, one, I did it for one group, it went to another, went to another, and they just saw me as a, a different kind of a leader. And the same for community work. I think that amplified my leadership. I think if I did my job just by itself, nobody would see me. And I'm not saying this is just my perspective looking backwards, but the work I did in the community really amplified who I was as a leader. And that's not the reason why I did it. And I didn't think that would be the impact, because I never told anybody initially I was doing all this work in the community, but then it became a thing that, my, you're doing all this work in Medtronic and you're doing all this stuff in the community and everybody knows you. Somebody texted me and said, this senior person just texted them and said, Sylvia knows all these folks in the community, these leaders. This is good for business. you <laughs> so cute. <laughs> <laughs> you're so cute so tell me so
0: so wait a minute so you can work in a company and be active in community and it can be good for business
1: yes because it increases the company's brand this is what community engagement is all about so leading up community engagement for my last company over the last 5 6 years it's all it's not it's about doing the right thing in alignment with a mission don't get me wrong but it, that the ripple effect of that is people see you in the community you know how many people said to me, I had never heard of Medtronic until you came along. And they were born and bred in, in North Minneapolis. Or they would say, that White House up there in a the hill? Right, it's they, they sort a of distance from them. And so seeing people in a community working, Target is a great example. Red Target shirts out there in a the community increases the brand of Target. Yeah, that's a good organization that's invested in our community. And so we need to get more employees invested in community, not just to align with the mission, not just to make sure it's good for the community, but also to increase the visibility of the organization.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think that company learned anything through their proximity to community? Did it evolve how they thought about community, how they interacted
1: in community? I, I think what amplified that significantly was the murder of George Floyd. Then there was this epiphany that racism exists right on our doorstep. What are we going to do about it? That's when people started to offer their time and services to get involved. And they intentionally, well-meaningly want to get involved to to right this wrong that was so egregious and heinous and done in front of our eyes. But there isn't a model out there because I think people are struggling to work full-time perform, because you can't do community work and be visible in the community. Because some people don't like that as well, right? Some people hate that. You can't be visible and do community work and you're failing at your full-time job. It's just not an option. You've got to perform at your job, make that priority, do your community work, just don't let it impact. That is a different, no one has that model. That is a different, a difficult thing for people to do. And I can candidly say with the murder of George Floyd and all these organizations wanting to get involved in community. What's happening now is for, and I'm talking about the murder of George Floyd, so I'm talking about the black community. What's happening now is black folks are expected to go above and beyond their job. And then that will get you the, you performed well. So there's there's no dedicated resources some t- places in some instances to doing this work but they're expecting the black folks to volunteer their time and that's where it can become civic engagement volunteering to being voluntold and then they're expected to perform like a job and they're sp- expected to do their job and then that's how you're going to get the you performed above and beyond what we expected you to do that's become an issue for lots of black people because they're tired they're exhausted they're feeling the grunt of the the aftermath of it all. And now, once this, this is a quiet quitting conversation, right? Once in a while, I can just do my job, but now I've got to do my job and do everything else for black people. But then, guess what? I don't want to miss, I need to represent my people. I don't want to not help my community. So, how can I say no? So, it's a burden for people, particularly people in corporate America.
0: Yeah, so okay, quiet quitting. Black women have been quiet quitting for years, so that has been a topic of discussion. It is, it has been all over uh, LinkedIn for sure with the article. So, so quiet quitting. How did how did that resonate with you? Quiet
1: quitting. I don't know if black people have been quiet quitting for years. I want to have that discussion because black women, in particular, are doing it all. Quite in my mind, what well, the definition I read of quiet quitting is: you do your nine to five, you do your job. You don't answer the phone at the weekend and you don't respond to emails at night time. <laughs> <laughs> Boundaries or is that quiet quitting, right? right
0: like, I mean, okay, bad. that's a debate,
1: but we're doing that all the time. We're answering emails at night and phone calls and we're doing our job as well as our community work, as well as all this other stuff. And I think the difference is, right. I wanted, it's just in my heart and passion to do all of this. And I do it at the level I did it. It's not in everyone's, everyone shows up for volunteering differently. Some people just want to volunteer for an hour. Tell me what to do, I'm showing up, structured, I'm gonna do it. Some people want it to be a lifetime commitment. Some people want to do it like maybe a little bit more. People have different models, but forcing them to do it on top of their jobs in a way that is like their jobs, that's where the challenge comes in.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you know, and in other cases, you've heard folks from, you know, all kinds of identities that become the person that people go to, to explain what is happening in community. And that additional burden, it creates fatigue, right? There's an expectation that is placed there that is not there for everyone and how you respond matters, because if you don't respond the right way, this is where all the stereotypical, right. You start, you start talking about the angry, uh, black woman and and those types of things. So there's all kinds of ways where these additional burdens and expectations get placed on diverse communities. Do you
1: think that we're examining those differently in the corporate space? No. I think the expectation is if you're Asian and there's a Asian hate crimes, then we're going to the Asian community they're going to tell us what to do. If you're black and there's black hate crimes, you're going to go to the black community we're going to tell them, and you're going to lead it and you're going to do all these kind of things. So there's the expectation. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. I'm kind of torn on that one because I wouldn't want anyone who's not in my community to tell me what's right for my community. So I think, you know, for me, I feel the responsibility to raise my hand and say, this is what the community is feeling and this is what they need, right? Cause this, so despite the emotional toll it has on us because we're still experiencing it. So I don't know if there's a right answer to that because we, would we want someone who's not in our community saying mm-hmm. what the community needs? Yeah,
0: I hear that. I mean, I don't know whether or not it's about um, acknowledgement and resource. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I know that, that we are in times that are very, very different. And the amount of conversations that I've been in around people that are experiencing new levels of fatigue that are very conflicted between their values and the values that they're working in or, or decisions that they have to make that they think are in conflict to what community might need. These are real conflicts that are showing up every day that people are wrestling with. And I just, you know, the conflicts are not going to go away. And I think the more we can find places to have the conversation and to figure out how to navigate those more successfully, I think we will be better in terms of addressing the the disparities um, and being more impactful all the way around, right? And folks will feel more satisfied. Mm.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, thinking about my experience at my talk, they were very good at managing that. They're very good at acknowledging and rewarding and recognising people that went above and beyond their jobs to represent and come up with strategies. Um, <laughs> I think for me, the, the challenge and the heartache and the hard work was we working with people that kind of jumped on, that not in the community, not in your community space, but wanted to jump on that bandwagon because they saw it as a path to their career progression. And so they were taking up space around that table, making, you know, pushing themselves, inserting themselves in places where they should not be inserted because they wanted to be seen as a leader. This was the en en vogue thing. Before, they weren't doing anything for black people. In fact, they were doing all they can to pull black people down then George Floyd gets murdered, everyone's on jumping on that bandwagon, the leaders are all upset, everyone wants to get, then all of a sudden, they're lovers of black people and they're taking up space and inserting themselves and they're trying to tell the black community what they need, but yet at the same time, they're dismissing their black peers and their colleagues because they think they're above them. That's where the hard work and the emotional toll takes place. Mm. This is just real talk right now.
0: Mm. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's for the listening ears. I don't know what to say about that. But if that's you, you should stop. <laughs> oh, man. And I mean, Well, you they know, should
1: recognize. You should recognize
0: it. I mean, you know, I mean, there's folks that have really good intention. And I think that if you are paying attention, you will see the signs of, of um, I mean, generally, you know, when you are welcomed in a space or not welcomed in a space. And if you just apply that to these type of issues, you will see the signs. Right. And I think most people will accept folks that are coming with, you know, true intentions to make a difference, even if it's clunky. Right. I think there are people that have never tuned in that feel horrible that they didn't tune in. And they they have honest intentions. I'm wanting to get get in the fight towards justice. And there's plenty of space for folks like mm-hmm. that. But you do have to enter like you're a novice. You can't come in, you know, with the plan.
1: But you gotta be authentic. That's my thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a space for everybody because Lord knows there's enough work to do, right? But you've got to be authentic, and I hate it when people come in because they want visibility, exposure, and a promotion off the backs of our people, off, off the backs of a horrific incident, you know? And there's too many of them. One is too many.
0: One is too many. Now what should we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> You got any questions
1: for me? Well, have I got any questions for you? Well, I would ask you as um, a community person, you're 100% community, engaged, leader, very, very well respected in the community by many, uh, very knowledgeable about systems and processes and all of that good stuff. How would you advise corporations to really have sincere, authentic, impactful community engagement strategies and plans in the Twin Cities? And I say the Twin Cities because, as you know, better than I, Fortune 500 headquarters, really high parada, probably the highest in the country. There's all of these corporations sitting there and everyone wants to do something. How would you advise them to do the right thing and do what's impactful?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really good question and a big question. And we're sitting, you know, Minnesota is a very generous community, right? One of the most charitable in the country. I think that we have been very proud of that as a state for a long time. And lending resources is one way to make a difference. And I think that what we have learned is being in relationship is something that's completely different. And so, you know, if I were to recommend, right, and, you know, I could probably say something really smart (laughs) about what they could do with their corporate philanthropy or how they could invite uh, community into their businesses differently or how they could have targeted strategies and all of those things. But honestly, Sylvia, I think just being in relationship with community and I say that meaning leader to leader. Like I remember leading Pillsbury United communities, and really craving good strategic thought partnership, or wanting my team to have some access to really good training space and thought leaders from across the country that our nonprofit budget could not afford, and and thinking about um, corporations that were bringing in speakers and wishing that you know our our leaders. Could have access to that i mean there are some things that are just sort of in my mind felt very simple right of it's not quite coaching but there's definitely sponsorship coaching relational um things because when you're in relationship right even with me as leader i think you begin to understand more about my approach into community that then shapes your approach i begin to understand even with our experience with African-American Leadership Forum, right? You're coming from corporate, I'm coming from the social sector, right? You had your way of approaching an issue when we were part of the education work group and I had my way and pretty soon we understood each other's ways and and, and it made the whole experience better. And I think that's part of the thing is that our sectors are so separate, right? And we know that some of the most sustainable efforts have been multi-sector um, with diverse people at the seats. And so I would suggest that if you're, if if you're trying to solve problems and you don't have a diverse set of thinkers at the table from multiple sectors, you could do better that way, right? If you're solving a problem in a community that you have no footprint in, um, you might have staff from there, but you haven't even talked to them about what their experience is. You might wanna just get back to the basis and basics and just ask good questions and be in relationship with the communities you're trying to serve. Mm,
1: Yeah, that's good advice. And I think there's something to be said about community leaders like you really coming together and providing advice and being counseled to corporations because they're always asking the questions of what can we do and how can we do it better and how can we be impactful. Now I have another question for you, which is a really important question. One of the things that I feared a lot when I moved to Minnesota and getting involved in community, which held me back somewhat, I had a hold back, was this, you're not from here. You don't understand because you're not from here. I've heard people say to other people that are American, you're from Chicago, you don't understand, you're from whatever, you don't understand. Me being British, very mindful of that. But from my perspective, people like me want to get engaged. And even though we're not from here, we wanna be part of the community. We live here, we uprooted to live here. And so how can we, I don't know if this is even a rhetorical question, but how can we appro- approach it different? Because I see that as a barrier. When I think that about
0: someone, I don't, do I say that to people? Apparently I do, by your face, maybe I do. So my tell, I guess, if I say that, what I mean what I'm responding to is what I believe is an assumption being said to me about a community that I'm from. Mm-hmm. So if you come and you say something about the North side, or if you say something about a community I'm very familiar with, that's not true from my experience of being here. I'm going to say you're not from here. Like I'm basically saying, if you go, if you go to that place with what you just said to me, you might not want to go to that place.
1: Yeah. And you haven't said that out loud. I've We've had conversations and, um, People have said, you you haven't said that directly, but I've been in like forums where people have stood up and said, you're not from here, not to me, but to other people. So what do you know? And I get it, but how do we build community if we're living here, but because we're not born here, it doesn't mean to say we can't contribute. and Yeah,
0: I mean, I think it's fair, but I also feel like, you know, if you really want to be active in community... And you have one person that says it. I mean, think about how many barriers get in your way to everything that you want to accomplish, right? When you show up every day, you showed up, you sat in that room, you were a listener, you were quiet. There are a lot of people that show up the first day with uh, like all the answers (laughs) that aren't from there, right? Like that can be offensive to people that have been here for a long time that have been working together. And so there's something that's really quite remarkable to me that I love about this city that I love about the north side, that I love about Rondo, right? That I love about greens, like, like the the, the love of place, right? The, like there's deep loyalty and there's something really, really great about that. Right. And that's an expression of that. There's also like, if you're not going to come here and respect what we got going on, right. go back to where you came from no, with all that noise, that right? Like yeah, exactly. there's a piece of that. But then there's also a piece of like, we need everybody. We need boots on the ground on these issues. Mm-hmm every single day because we are losing lives literally and and folks are not achieving the goals and dreams that they have for themselves because the systems are not performing and responding to the needs of our communities and we need everybody on board to do that and so you know one person two people saying that if you mean it you find people that don't say that to you right and if you allow that to be the excuse you weren't you weren't there
1: Exactly, if you allow that to be the reason to stop you. i got to say, Minnesota Twin Cities, community, Black community, the corporate community, the, the, the diverse in the community, I just love it. I live in Atlanta now, I love Atlanta, but I miss my Minnesota community. Well, we miss you too, Sylvia. Before we go, one last
0: question, which is, would you share with our listeners your best leadership
1: advice? My best leadership advice is, you know, do all of the external stuff. The mentoring, the coaching, the performing, the planning, the strategy, all that good stuff. But the secret sauce is the internal stuff. What is your path? What is your purpose? Why am I put on this earth? Does this fulfill me? Am I doing it for internal reasons or external reasons? Am I doing it for soul fulfillment or am I doing it because of ego? And once you get more to that internal, it will really guide you along your career. It will guide you in how you show up as a leader. It will guide you in how to be humble, how to be compassionate to yourself and others, and how really to make an impact in this world. And once you're on path and purpose, you're unstoppable. You float. You'll be successful in ways that you never imagined. So the internal clock, for me, is the most important clock when it comes to leadership. I appreciate you, sister. I love you, sis, I love you too, I love you. (laughs) Sylvia
0: Bartley, Conversations with Shonda. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sylvia Bartley. She is so powerful in the way that she leads her life with great intention. She is so deliberate about sharing her story and her journey. If you
1: enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. Thank you to Sarah Gilland, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening.